invite you to remain standing. Our scripture comes this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 6, 12 and 13, and 41 through 47. Hear these words. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one of them heard speaking in his own language. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And then finally, 41 through 47. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated. It's good to be here with you all this morning uh, as we're gathered here together to Uh, have our last sermon in this series, That's Good News, where we've been looking at the word that too often in the church we've kind of pushed aside, and that word is the E-word or evangelism. In our series, we've taken the time the past three weeks to see for us how it's biblical for us to share our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. We've done that based on the idea that we have to make new Christians. We have to take new Christians and we have to help them to become disciples And then we have to take disciples and we have to equip ourselves to go out and to invite other people to be a part of something great. And that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Too often, I think, we get stuck in the discipleship mode and we kind of overlook the part of sending out. I think part of that is we build a community, we find a community, we're part of what we want to be in. And so we grow and we nurture and and we um, work together. But we don't go and invite others to be a part of what we're doing. And so each week we've looked at what uh, we think or what it means for us to be a disciple and what it means for us to, to, to practice this idea of sharing the good news. The first thing we have to do is define and know what the gospel is. Also, we have to embrace that the gospel is good news. It's not just a book we read, but it is good news. We have to embrace Christ's call for his followers to share the gospel, and then we have to receive the power to effectively share it. And so for us to do this, we've looked at how uh, we have to know what the gospel is. We cannot share our faith. We cannot engage in our faith. We can't invite others to be a part of our faith journey if we don't know what we're talking about when we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go and read early church history, you know, for the first at least 300 years, if not 400-ish years, this is one of the major things that the earliest Christians wrestled with, is what are the essentials of the faith? What are the things that you and I have to carry that if we disagree on some things, it's okay, but what are the things that we can't disagree on, that we have to have agreement on, that we believe are the core truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so here's what they say. And if you go and if you want to look in the scriptures, Paul outlines this for us in a very helpful way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Or cha- yeah, chapter 15. Um, and so he outlines the essentials that were handed on to him that he saw as essential. 
And I think if you think about them as we read them and review them in just a moment, and if you think about them, you'll see that these are exact same truths that you and I uh, recite when we recite the Apostles' Creed or when we share the Nicene Creed. Because they're essential. And so Paul says, for us to know the gospel, we have to believe that Jesus died for our sins, for all of our sins. The Bible tells us we're all sinners. The Bible tells us that we're all separated from God because of our sin. Sin affects us, and we are unable to stand before God with the exception of His grace. And so we all need the grace of God. We all need the forgiveness of God. The Scriptures also tell us accurate things about Jesus Christ. The Gospels tell us everything we need to know about Jesus. So you can either accept that or you don't have to accept that. But when we accept what the Gospels tell us about Jesus, we're in that that core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This means when, um, is it National Geographic? They usually roll out, you know, around Christmas time or Easter, the new magazine on Jesus with the newest scholar that kind of has a different idea of who Jesus was. I mean, I always buy them. I'm guilty. But I always read them and go, yeah, I really don't see it that way. Because the scriptures tell us who Jesus was and who Jesus is. They tell us what Jesus did for us and what Jesus has continued to do for us through his living, through his dying, and through his resurrection. Also, we have to remember that Jesus was buried. He wasn't just temporarily frozen. And one of the greatest false teachings about his resurrection is that he was not truly dead. And so all four Gospels, if we believe the Gospels are true, then we're going to believe what the Gospels tell us, that Jesus died. That he was wrapped in cloths, he was laid in a tomb, and the stone was rolled in front of the tomb, and then three days later he rose from the dead. Friends, I'm going to tell you, if we're talking about the, the being a Christian, and if we cannot say that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then really we take out every other thing that we believe about what it means for us to be followers of Jesus, what it means for us to be Christians, don't we? I mean, Jesus' resurrection is what sets us apart from the Jewish faith. One of the things, probably the biggest thing. And so on Easter morning, life returned to a man who was dead. Well, how? We can't really explain that. That's a mystery that we attribute to the Holy Spirit, that we offer to God, and that we realize we may never fully understand. But that's okay because we know that Jesus achieved the ultimate victory over death. And then finally, there were witnesses. The New Testament is built on the witnesses of Jesus Christ, on those who witnessed his life and his ministry, who heard his teachings, who saw the miracles, who who saw him die, and who saw him resurrected. Jesus physically rose from the dead. He ate with them. He walked with them. He talked with them. They touched him. And he appeared in many other ways before he ascended into heaven. I think we can agree that there were witnesses to the resurrection because if there were not, you and I would have no idea what happened to a man named Jesus 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem, a Galilean who was from the outside skirts of, of everything, of civilization. I mean, we wouldn't know if there weren't people that had taken the time to tell us and who believed in their hearts and who knew the truth. And that's the truth that we share today. See, when it comes to the gospel, we have to be firmly rooted in the essentials of who Jesus was, of what he did, and of what God did in the workings of the early church. If you go and read in the book of Acts, we read about how God chose to work in the early church. And so today our scripture comes from the book of Acts. At the beginning, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. 
I think it helps for us to know a little bit more about Pentecost. It's one of the three major Jewish festivals that is observed each year in the city of Jerusalem. For these three major festivals, any Jew who lived within 20 miles of the city was required to to travel to Jerusalem in order to participate in worship there. Along with the festival of Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, Jewish pilgrims would come to Jerusalem where they would gather in the temple, they would participate in the celebrations and the other acts of worship. And in fact, if you go and read the Gospels, what did they tell us that Jesus did with Mary and Joseph? He traveled to Jerusalem with his parents. They would walk and make the journey. took a couple of days of walking to get from the region of the Galilee and the city of Nazareth down to the city of Jerusalem. There they participated in worship and then they would walk home. And so on Pentecost, Jewish worshipers would offer sacrifice And they would offer sacrifice for a couple things. I thought this slide was helpful. Um, Pentecost is the feast of harvest. And so they were harvesting the first fruits. They were giving God thanks for the first fruits of the harvest that they had harvested that year. And then also Pentecost was the day that they remember and they observed when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and Moses came down from Mount Sinai to deliver these important teachings to the people of Israel. So Pentecost was important. And so on Pentecost, God took this important holiday and he gave it to us and gave it to us as followers of Jesus in a different day. On this Pentecost, 120 disciples of Jesus are gathered together in a home. They've remained in the city for 50 days uh, after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had told them, he had said, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So Jesus has promised them he is going to bless them. He has promised them that God is going to equip them. But what did the disciples had to do? They had to wait. They had to wait and they had to be obedient. They had to wait and they had to make sure that they would be in that place where God was going to to meet them. And Luke writes in the book of Acts chapter 2, suddenly a great wind, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So picture them. There's 120 of them in a room. The doors are closed, and they're just waiting. They're waiting, not knowing what to expect. They're waiting, and they're worshiping. They're waiting, and they're not knowing what they are actually looking for. They have no idea what Jesus meant when he said, wait here and God will send you his power. But here's what they did is they trusted, didn't they? They trusted that God would do and that God could do what he had, what Jesus had told them was going to happen. And so they positioned themselves by waiting. And as they waited, they worshiped and they experienced this mighty wind moving amongst them in that room. Tongues of fire came and appeared over each of them and came to rest on them. They were empowered. And see, God had provided them a visible sign, right? Or an indicator for them to see God's Spirit. God had empowered them, though. And they'd received this gift that that Jesus had told them they were to wait for. They received it. I think it's something for us to see and for something for us to look at that the disciples, the apostles, the people that had seen Jesus firsthand, that had shared and experienced all of these things, they couldn't pursue the Holy Spirit for themselves. They couldn't generate the Holy Spirit on their own. They couldn't buy the Holy Spirit. I mean, we can look in in the book of Acts chapter 8 
If you read the book of Acts chapter 8, there's a man named Simon the sorcerer. Simon was a magician of some sort, and Simon made a lot of money in, um, uh-oh, I just forgot what city. Samaria, okay, in the city of Samaria. And so um, Philip has gone to Samaria. Then Peter and John have gone to Samaria because the church is growing. People are receiving the Holy Spirit. People are hearing of the gospel and they're changing their lives. And so this man named Simon from Samaria, who was a sorcerer, comes to Peter and he says, what do I owe you to get this gift? Like he's ready to pay him money. And, and, and so Simon, you know, was, was wanting this gift because he saw the opportunity that he would have to make money off of the Holy Spirit. He thought he could buy it. He thought he, he could do what, what is so hard for all of us, right? Is to wait. He thought he'd be able to jumpstart that waiting. He thought he could jumpstart God into action. He thought he could jumpstart God into working. Now, Peter told him, Simon, go away. You cannot buy the Holy Spirit. But see, the apostles had to wait. And in their waiting, they positioned themselves to experience and to receive the Holy Spirit. See, for us to receive the Holy Spirit, we have to want it. And we have to prepare and position ourselves to receive it. And it's promised to us. And then Luke writes, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as they were enabled. I said they were filled with the Spirit and they were given the tools by God that equipped and enabled the followers of Jesus Christ to change the world. I think it's important for us to see that their giving of tongues, their receiving of these gifts, these aren't the end of them. This isn't their end goal for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not their, their final achievement that they have now achieved this, this level of, of I don't know, being a Christian, and then they can just go off into the sunset and do their own thing. They're not the end. The coming of the Holy Spirit is not the end. In fact, if we read it in the Bible consistently, when people receive the Spirit, it's the beginning of God enabling them to carry the gospel and to do things that they never would have been able to do on their own or before. Their empowerment allowed others to hear the message. Their empowerment allowed others to share the message. Their empowerment is why you and I are able to read these words and why we are able to experience the very gift that God has given us. Like Luke wants us to see and to remember that, that Pentecost was not first a Christian holiday. Pentecost was Jewish. But it was in this holiday that God was able to meet his people and so it says, when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in their own language. Right, so what's a modern comparison to Pentecost? I think it's kind of difficult if you think about it. We don't walk by um, large crowds very often. Usually we drive by them. And usually if we drive by a large crowd, we make sure that our windows are up and our radios are on, right? And the AC's blasting and you don't really want to hear anything. But a good comparison might be Let's say you go to an athletic event or some sort of community event. Whether it's professional, amateur, it doesn't really matter. Um, you pay your admission, you get in the gate, you see a crowd gathering, and you try to, to see from a distance what's happening. Is it something I want to be a part of? Or is it something that I really just need to leave behind? If it's free food or some other giveaway, you hustle over there, don't you? 
If it looks like trouble's brewing, what do you do? You turn around and you make a beeline away. Or you kind of keep an eye on it and you move slowly away from that, from that group. But my point is you want to see what's happening. And I think this is similar to, to what we can see was happening in the city of Jerusalem. The disciples are gathered in this room. They're gathered in the, the room where they have been, been waiting and the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And because the old city of Jerusalem is tight, you know, you're not driving through the old city of Jerusalem unless either A, you're a daredevil, uh, you're on a small scooter, or you're driving a tractor. Um, but, but because the streets are so narrow, so, so people are, are walking and they're crowded and, and so people are, it's easy for them to hear what's happening. And so as people are hearing what's happening, they're coming to, to the disciples and they're hearing people preaching about this man named Jesus as a fulfillment to everything the Old Testament has prof- promised. And they're hearing this in their own language. And so as they get closer, they're hearing a clearer and clearer message of hope and of resurrection from a, a group of people who were not trained as Pharisees. They're not trained as priests. They're not recognized in any way. And so the crowd stare at these people and they recognize that they're Galileans. So Galileans in those times were known as backwoods, as rural, as poorly educated, as fishermen. No one would have chosen or, or sought them out to preach or to teach or even as someone to follow. And yet here they are preaching this message to a rapidly growing crowd. And everyone is understanding what's being said. And so God equipped them. And so amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Friends, I think this is where it intersects with us. Is what does it mean when the Holy Spirit moves through God's people? It means that we often find ourselves standing against the culture. It means that the world doesn't know what to do with a group of people that still live a moral life, that still live according to biblical teaching, and who don't get mad and back down. The world doesn't know what to do with people who are guided by the Holy Spirit because it's God guiding us. It's not us guiding us. Because people who are guided by the Spirit choose love over hate, choose service over being served, choose generosity over accumulation. See, the world doesn't know what to do with Jesus. And so when our lives are guided and fueled by Jesus, we have a faith, we have a hope, we have an energy that's unmatched and for us to be effective in our witness we have to carry the joy of Jesus Christ so here's one of the best lines it says somehow ever made fun of them and said they've had too much wine I mean all this says to us is when lives are changing and when people are being changed by Christ there's going to be pushback There's going to be pushback because people don't want to be confronted with their own shortcomings or their sins. There's pushback because people don't want to change. There's pushback because people don't want to have to to look at what they're doing. And see, when there's pushback, all you and I can do is is pray about it and let it go by. The apostles, if you look at them, I mean, Peter preached. But he didn't go out into the crowd and spend a lot of time engaging all of those who opposed their message, did he? He preached, the Spirit worked, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. Because there's a spiritual battle that's going on over our hearts. God's already won the battle. But we just have to get in line and be a part of it. And then it says what the apostles did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Boy, they were in awe and amazed at what God was doing. And they were privileged that they were able to be a part of it. They knew that nothing that was being done was being done because of them. Everything was being done because of the Holy Spirit and the unlimited power of God. See, when God's working, it's really easy for us to think it's us, isn't it? But I think what the earliest apostles show us and what the earliest disciples are able to show it is that when God is working, we can't take credit for what God is doing. All we can do is thank God for allowing us to be on the ride. Because it's going to be bigger, it's going to be greater, it's going to be more glorious than anything you and I can ever accomplish on our own or produce on our own. <clears throat> and then they met together and they shared in, in all that they had. The early Christians made a regular practice to gather together, to study, to fellowship, to eat, to, to live life. Friends, what we get out of the Christian community is what we put into the Christian community. If you don't make the effort to connect to other Christians, then you can't complain if you feel disconnected from other Christians. We have to show up early. We have to invest in each other. We have to socialize. We have to study the Bible. We have to do whatever it is. Sing in the choir, uh, work at the lighthouse, do whatever thing we can do to be a part of what's happening. Because we get what we back, what we invest into other people. The early Christians also saw, and this is how the Holy Spirit was working with them, is, is they were generous. They saw how it was important for them to, to support the movement that they were a part of. Generosity is a mark of our spiritual health. It's a mark of our heart. It's a part of growth as we give generously as Christians, as we participate in the ministry of Christ. And it says that they worshiped. They worshiped together in the temple each day. Worship is where you interact and where you encounter Jesus. It's a place where God meets you within the Christian community. And whenever we gather together, we have to pray as a community and as individuals for the Holy Spirit to meet us here. To meet us where we gather in order to, to make the place that we are at holy for His glory and for His name. And then the Lord is going to add to their number those who are being saved. Their faith in Jesus motivated them to invite others to discover for themselves the movement of the Holy Spirit and a life of faith. The disciples knew that it was their job to invite and it was God's job to move within the hearts of those who came to find Him. We have to rediscover and we have to reignite that drive to invite others to experience the life that God offers us through His Son, Jesus. It's not my job to convince or to convict. It's not your job to convince or to convict. Your job is to invite, to pray, or pray, then invite, whatever order works for you, that God will work through His power. Friends, we have to make the invitation. And I can promise you that God has already given you everything else that you need. So I want to provide for you another tool. Uh, we've provide, designed some business cards for you to carry with you. This is out of the book, if anyone's that's read it. So um, if you've read the That's Good News book and you think that, um, well, it's just, I think it's one of the best ideas he comes with. Uh, and they're just business cards. You'll see them on the photo. One side says the church name, and then the back side has a QR code that directs people to the website with the worship time. I would ask that you carry them. 
I would ask when you're talking to someone and if they're looking for a church, you just say, here's the church I go to. I love what's going on. And you hand it to them and you're done. You know, I can think of, of times when um, I've encountered people that, that it would have helped me to have this because uh, church, church, I guess people that study demographics of church find that so many people are just waiting for the invitation. They're willing to be a part of what we're doing. They're willing to be a part of a Christian community. They just don't know yet how to get involved. And sometimes it's us providing that connection that helps them to get involved. So the one thing also from the book that I want to give you is if you're talking to someone and you want to share with them this and they say, oh, well, I go to this church and I just haven't been in a long time. And then they go, but I'm going to go this Sunday and they do. Friends, that's a victory. I want you to see that as a victory because that's a kingdom victory, right? It's a victory because people are getting connected with Jesus. Maybe not here, but that's okay. Because we believe, I believe that the world has changed through faithful Christians who choose to follow him who choose to have their lives changed, and who choose to pursue a life in Jesus Christ. So we have tons of these. So I'd invite you to take some, leave them at your workplace, whoever you talk to. And we're going to be doing this for the next year. Because I believe that things can be changed. I know things can be changed. I know the world can be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of those who offer themselves for Him. So the ushers... Um, during the last hymn, are going to have these baskets of cards to pass around. You don't have to be, um, you can take more than one. Please take more than one. We'll have plenty of extra. And let's just share them. Because the gospel has changed our life in a way that nothing else can. As the ushers come forward, I want to invite you to join with me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the way that you have chosen to work in us and through us. Through the power of your son Jesus. We thank you as we read the book of Acts and the New Testament letters. We see how um, so many have come to the faith through the invitation of someone else. Whether that's Andrew going to Peter and saying, come and see this guy Jesus who I just met. Or others who uh, heard something was happening and so uh, just out of their curiosity they went. And they heard. And they witnessed and their lives were changed. And so, God, we ask for your blessing as we share these cards with those that we know and those that we don't. Help them to be the bridge that we need to invite others to this church, to help them to get involved. Or even if they get back involved in their church, Lord, to, to build your kingdom one life at a time. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing on these gifts. We ask your blessing on the gifts that we return to you and we just pray that you would help us to be your servants and your disciples. Amen.